0: Hello, everyone. It's May 26th, 2020. So, Douglas Libero is stepping down as head of human spaceflight at NASA. It's quite the shakeup at a critical moment. We can only speculate as to why, but we will speculate. Also, some final Crew Dragon talk just days before it's launched. All right, let's do it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 262 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So apparently you want to talk about Avatar. The yeah. Last airbender.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I will take an opportunity to talk about Avatar anytime I can get it. But Avatar got added to
0: Netflix this
1: week uh this week last week and it immediately shot up to their number one watched show
0: um yeah so so here's okay so before you go any further pretend like i don't know much about it and explain to me exactly what the big deal is with avatar
1: (laughs) oh it's it's really good so it's an animated show uh that aired on i believe nickelodeon and um the original show was really good. And then there was a movie made by M. Night Shyamalan that is so bad that the fans basically pretend it doesn't exist. Um, mm-hmm. and then there's, um, a sequel show called The Legend of Korra. But right now it's just the original uh, animated TV show that's on Netflix. Um, it's one of those beautiful shows that has um, a beginning and an ending. Um, they mm, knew like the that. story. Yeah, exactly. They they had a story that they wanted to tell and they knew where it began and ended. Um, so it's three seasons, although Avatar calls them books. It's kind of this package story. It, how, it takes place in a world um, that feels, what's the technology level? Like pre-Renaissance, pre-Industrial Revolution era. Yeah, I, I would say like uh, like late Iron Age, maybe. But anyway, it takes place in a world where, <laughs> calling in the chat <laughs> says pre-Steampunk. There you go. Um, So it it takes place in a world where there are animals that have learned to um, bend elements, and they have taught some select humans how to basically use telepathy to move a particular element, air, water, earth, fire. And uh, there's like a Dalai Lama called the Avatar who reincarnates over and over, so sort of the mantle of the avatar gets passed um, from person to person. And the Avatar's job is to bring balance to a world where some people can bend elements, but all, you know only a particular element. And so it's a world that's very divided. There's you know each each group of genetic lines that can bend a particular element have formed into different nations: the Fire Nation, the Earth Kingdom, the Air Nomads, and the Water Tribes. And so they they live in this very divided world, and the Avatar is this symbol that can bring people together and bring peace and balance. And Avatar The Last Airbender occurs after the Avatar has died and not been reincarnated for 100 years. And the story starts with this world that's normally pretty uh, contentious and now has had a major balancing force missing for 100 years. uh, And the Fire Nation has basically taken over the world um, and oppressed everybody else. (laughs) And Hmm. so uh, it's... This really amazing tale that has, you know, cartoonish comedy, like it, it is a children's show, but there are very emotional elements of the story. There are very strong female characters. Um, one of the main characters even has a disability. Um, it, it's really, really, really good it, for so many different reasons. And you know it's it's a heavy story that's all wrapped up in a very light-hearted fun cartoon kind of atmosphere and it's it's just fantastic and like i said it's on netflix and you can watch it for free without commercials and you know the ability to automatically skip the intro although it's one of the best intros uh to a cartoon mm-hmm. in my opinion and yeah so uh david and dennis neither of you have seen any of it right correct
2: nope. But I did actually have very real plans to, and part of it is because of all the, you know, I've only heard good things about it. And also, mm-hmm. it's a manageable number of episodes. So I'm not yeah. locking into something like Naruto, which was like a thousand episodes or some absurd number. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's got a lot of appeal to me. And plus, you know, I don't really have any other shows to watch right now. so.
1: Okay, sounds like a perfect recipe <laughs> for, for watching Avatar.
0: So, uh, in the news, Lavero quit. <laughs> um, yeah. Quit or was let go. I thought no, he, he maybe was... <laughs> he, oh, he quit. He stepped okay. down, yes. Because I thought maybe he was... I mean, is this one of those things where he was politely asked to step down or was this completely of his own volition?
1: It is not clear, but I suspect it's of his own volition. The way that he's talking about it, it sounds like it, sounds like it was his choice.
0: But yeah, so he... Well, first of all, we should uh, explain who he is, because uh, he has one of those long NASA titles. So he's the director of human spaceflight. Uh, did I get that right? I'm going it from was, memory. He
1: but yeah, I believe that's correct. Uh, so for a little bit of, a little bit of background, um, Gersten Meyer held the position previously, and he retired in October. Um, Dennis, you wrote booted in the show notes i don't think that's right didn't he didn't he retire or he was he was demoted he was demoted i thought he i thought he went to go work for um the administrator
2: but i think that was the idea they they booted him out of that position i don't think that was his choice so they kind of gave him a demotion to a different position and then he kind of you know it was almost like a formality and then he held that there for some number of months and then retired that's how I'm remembering it. And I, I misremember things wrong. <laughs> but uh, that was such a big news item. It wasn't just that he was retired, but that he was somebody who had been there for so long and he was kind of ignominiously moved out of that position.
1: So uh, Bridenstine said two days after he was reassigned, we're moving to a new era in human spaceflight where the administration is interested in going fast. We're interested in doing things in a different way. And I believed it was important to have new leadership at the top of the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. So, yeah, maybe not. Booted seems a little
2: <laughs> provocative.
1: <laughs> provocative, yeah. But uh, but maybe a little long in the tooth and uh, unwilling or unable to move into a new era. Although, you know, that really sounds like excuse Let's, you know, let's continue to praise this person who's done a lot of good work, but we're going to mm-hmm. move him around anyway. So, Maybe booted might be a little uh, impolite maybe, but maybe not entirely uh, misleading. It's
0: a good assessment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And actually, just to correct myself, Lovera was the associate administrator for human exploration. So that's actually what his position was. So, Hmm. yeah.
1: So, Dennis, can you tell us a little bit about what Lovera was doing before this position?
0: Sure.
2: So, um was somebody who had been basically in the kind of defense side of space for a long time. So he had 30 years at the Department of Defense and the uh, NRO, NRO, National Reconnaissance uh, Office. um. He served a whole bunch of different roles. I think the most recent one um, was from 2013 to 2017. He was the deputy, here's another title, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy. And so he's always been kind of a a space person, but never really part of NASA. And so, uh, you know, I think he retired after that, but then kind of came out of retirement. I'm not 100% certain about that. But whatever the case was when Bridenstine came to him about this uh, being in head of, the head of human space flight, he like a lot of people who, you know, were, uh, Apollo babies was like, hell yeah, that's a dream job. So, <laughs> uh, really excited to, uh, take it. But unfortunately, uh, something happened and, uh, he chose to, uh, it sounds like, um, whether he chose to or not is kind of still up in the air, but, uh, yeah. Uh, He may have chose to kind of fall on his sword and uh, resign from the position because of a uh, a little bit of impropriety.
1: And and so we have some quotes here that uh, are at least mostly reliable. I mean, you know, there's always spin. There's always, uh, you know, anonymous quotes are always anonymous. But um, we'll try to... Identify when we're quoting and when we're speculating, because there is a lot of speculation here. But I'll go ahead and and read the first quote from the Washington Post. Well, actually, I'm quoting the article and not n- not direct quotes. So just FYI, uh, the article says two people with knowledge of the situation who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss the personnel matter said his resignation was spurred when Laverro broke a rule. During NASA's recent procurement of a spacecraft capable of landing humans on the moon, so that's HLS, right? We've been talking about that a lot—the mm-hmm, human yeah. landing system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Washington Post article goes on to quote the letter that the the resignation letter. So I want to include that right here, and then we can we can move on. So Lavera, in his resignation letter, uh, wrote, "Quote." that he took a risk earlier in the year because I judged it necessary to fulfill our mission. Now over the balance of time, it is clear that I made a mistake in that choice for which I alone must bear the consequences. I wonder if by balance of time, he means uh, the inspector general, the the balance of the OIG.
0: (laughs) The main thing that I'm wondering, which I guess everyone is, is what is it that he did? Like I, cause I can't even.
1: And and hmm. that's, we we've got we've got something we got a guess if not an answer but what makes what makes your question david so um so punchy here is because his resignation came a week before crew dragon launches oh. for the first time and he actually quit before the flight readiness review And so um, one of the tweets that I saw that I thought was really apropos was somebody saying, I can't imagine what kind of disagreement is more important or is so important that it can't wait a week. Mm
0: -hmm. Hmm. So one thing that he did say directly was that this had to do with moving fast on the Artemis program. So that's something of a clue. I I still don't know what that means, but it has to do with getting things done. It has to do with Artemis. But yeah, that doesn't demystify anything for me really. I'm I'm so clueless.
2: And the way I'm reading that too is that it, it doesn't necessarily mean about moving, having Artemis itself move fast, but maybe him taking shortcuts as part of the procurements and contracts and whatnot that are being uh, assembled for Artemis in a particular human landing system. Yeah, and so here's, I mean, there's a lot of quote-worthy things that came from his, uh, this was a, an email, right, that he had sent, I believe. And so, uh, Lavaro also said, the risks we take, whether technical, political, or personal, all have potential consequences if we judge them incorrectly. I took such a risk earlier in the year because I judged it necessary to fulfill our mission. Now, over the balance of time, it is clear I made a mistake in that choice, for which I alone must bear the consequences. My leaving is because of my personal actions, not anything we accomplish together. Yeah, alright.
1: So, uh, speculation time. Time. The scuttlebutt is that, so so we know that this is a procurement issue and not uh, anything to do with, with Crew Dragon, which was sort of our, our initial, I don't know about you guys, but my initial reaction was, you know, is this potentially uh, an issue with, with Crew Dragon? Um, I was talking about it to my partner, Corey, and she said oh, yeah, I bet you there's something wrong with Crew Dragon, and uh, he quit because it was the only way to get it addressed. And I was like, I, yeah. I don't know, maybe. Like That was my first instinct. And then we're kind of discussing it, and then almost like while we were discussing it, information came out that it wasn't related to that. So we can set that aside. Mm-hmm. But since then, we've heard that it is. it, it had to do with procurement for Artemis, And what it sounds like, this is total speculation and rumor, but it sounds like he, in order to push ahead to get to the 2024 deadline, he saw it as being important, which it is, but he saw it as being important that they get HLS moving. And so in order to do that, it sounds like he actually started tipping the scales in Boeing's favor. I don't know if it was all internal and he was giving them more weight than they deserved, or if it included some external communication where he was telling Boeing, here's what we want you to do in order to win this contract. Uh, but it sounds like he was pushing for Boeing to complete either HLS or something that's closer to Earth. Maybe maybe in getting HLS ready to launch. Oh, okay, here we go. Uh, so Ben Hallert is in the chat and he says, uh, rumor I heard was that he believed an integrated launch, aka Boeing all the way was the most likely to hit the 2024 goal. Uh, that, yeah, that sounds pretty reasonable. So it, it, that's not, you know, pushing for your preferred launch configuration isn't uh, a bad thing, but apparently he stepped over the line, um, and, and broke some sort of p- procurement rule. Ben, I, I think I saw you call it, uh, blackout rules. And, and so, you know, we don't, we don't know. Uh, but that seems to fit all the data that that we can see. So Ben Ben says uh he wasn't the one who said blackout rules. Um I th- now that I think about it, I think that might have been uh Richard Durden, uh one of one of our producers. So yeah, Ben says if he communicated details of the other bids to Boeing to try and get them a better bid from uh to, to get a better bid from them, that's bad. Yeah, if if that's what he did, that's really horrible. Um yeah. and then uh Sam in the chat, I got a good quote. Uh, again, or all speculation, but, uh, Sam says, remember the original commercial crew announcement where they all weren't supposed to know beforehand, but supposedly the Sierra Nevada folks all looked really glum from the start of the meeting. (laughs) Mm. So, yeah, it sounds like there might've been some, uh, some talking behind channels, at least on that side. And so that makes talking to Boeing uh, make a little more sense.
2: Although I I, I would think, though, given the nature of all this was less of a him choosing to kind of, you know, I'm thinking he was asked to step down. I think somebody sat down and said, look, you can't walk away from this unscathed. You really got to resign. Yeah,
1: I, I think like I don't think that it's likely that he went, oh, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. And like realized, oh, Ben says he resigned. "Quote unquote," resign, not resigned. Yeah, well, um, I, I think I, I think it was more likely a heavy implication. Like somebody said, "Hey, uh, we just realized what you did." Just FYI, we know. And then he resigns. I mean, it, we're kind, I'm kind of splitting hairs here, but mm-hmm. I'd be a little surprised if they said we found out now leave. I think it was. I think it was probably like he realized that somebody knew what he had done. Um, and I think mm-hmm. the least likely explanation here is that he knew that it was. Or he didn't realize it was wrong from the beginning, and then he self-discovered that he had he had done something wrong. Um, I I think he likely got caught doing something. So
0: yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So where do we go from here?
0: Well, from here, uh, somebody has to replace him. And apparently, I, and I don't know if this is, is this just like temporary because he's currently being replaced by Ken Bowersox, um, who we you know talked about before. He's mm-hmm. a former astronaut. Um, I don't know if that's a permanent position for him though, but for right now. That is what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's currently, or I guess, was the deputy associate administrator for human exploration. So now he's uh, associate administrator for the, human exploration. The yes.
1: acting mm-hmm. associate administrator. I don't, I don't know if he's acting. I'm assuming he actually took the yeah. took the mantle on. But
0: yeah, so he's moved up one. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. And and uh, uh, Ben Hallard in the chat has a good point. We're approaching an election. All of this could be a moot point. Uh, very very soon. Um, we we may see you know a lot of positions change at the end of the year. Um, but I think that the big deal is, you know, Bower Sox is now <laughs> in charge of this launch as it were. And it, I, I think it's absolutely insane that Levero quit right before this launch. It seems like that is something that could potentially put people's lives at risk. So I'm assuming that either he was hustled out real damn fast Or uh, he was confident enough in his staff that he felt like it was okay for him to take off, Um, which, you know, wouldn't be shocking because he was it it seems like he was really focused on um, on Artemis and maybe he wasn't having such an active role in commercial crew. I I don't I don't know. That's a total guess.
2: My own pure speculation is that given, I think, the prestige that goes with of holding this position the first time. Right. U.S. is, you know, this is only the what the fifth uh, uh, vehicle right, that Americans have basically launched off of a Mm classed vehicle uh, from U.S. soil. And getting, again, I think he was ousted. And that happening so shortly before launch, I think coming from an administration uh, bigger than NASA, right, I'm talking about the entire U.S. administration, has a history of kind of humiliating people. And Mm -hmm. so I wouldn't be surprised one bit if that was part of it. But that's my uh, speculation no.
1: I, I think I think you're not entirely barking up the wrong tree, but I would be really surprised if this came from the White House or, you know, uh, outside of NASA, because we know that the White House really does not mind uh, a little bit of insider trading, as it were. <laughs> Uh, you know mm-hmm. and the hill uh literally is okay with insider trading um <laughs> a- at the moment so that would be a little surprising but yeah the timing definitely does feel like it's a hey you don't get this feather you know you don't get to say i presided over this launch before my retirement
2: yeah it could be it's it sounds like a just so story i'm kind of making up but uh, yeah. Since we're speculating, I want to throw that out there in case I'm correct. Yeah,
0: it's that's an interesting
1: <laughs> yeah. speculation. I'm happy to to put you down for that one.
0: Well, I have no further speculations.
2: <laughs> okay,
1: okay, so we can we can go back into uh, into the realm of reality here.
2: Yes. Yeah, so one thing that kind of came out of this was a quote from Brian Stein, as well as somebody else, uh, highlighting that you know for the human landing system, we had talked about them down selecting to one or two companies, uh, ultimately, right? They've got the three right now, Dynetics, um, the Blue Origins uh, team, and then uh, SpaceX. And so Brian Stein uh, and others were reporting that they probably won't downselect below two to kind of keep things su- sustainable, to have uh, options and contingencies if one, you know, is falling behind and the other, you know, very similar to what kind of is happening with commercial crew, right, between um, Boeing and SpaceX. And so uh, I thought that was neat to, you know, have two companies uh, at the end of the day uh, making it through the hls selection process
1: yeah i'd be shocked if if spacex wasn't one of them because spacex is going to be doing this development anyway so it seems like kind of a freebie Mm -hmm. to keep them in and then the question really is is it going to be dynetics or the national team Um, Mm -hmm. and we've already voiced our opinions on that but that's going to be interesting
0: well i guess would it be a freebie to keep them in or if i guess it would be a freebie to not include them because (laughs) they're going to do it anyway and then (laughs) then bring them back in later
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah Uh, yeah, I he- I hear what you're saying, but you you get you get what I'm
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I do. Let's move on to Crew Dragon. We're going to Talk about a few things, but first we're going to talk about the various abort modes for Crew Dragon, and this is something that was pointed out to us by Andrew Danowitz, who is a listener of the show. Um, so yeah, there's an article in NASA Spaceflight which points out that there are eight distinct abort modes, which actually are subject to change uh, in the future because uh, they need to shake this. What is it like? Shake it out, shake it down, whatever it's called. <laughs> um, you know, like work out exactly how. Yeah, this will all work.
1: Yeah, but how mm-hmm. how cool is that? So there, there's one one mode on the pad that's called one A. Actually, just a little. Uh, 1A is uh, at takeoff. Oh, I see. Okay. Thank you. So yeah, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with at least the idea that shuttle had multiple abort modes and they all had like sentence fragment names pretty much. Abort to orbit, abort Mm -hmm. once around, uh, return, RTLS return to launch site, you know, all these different things. But SpaceX is a little more pragmatic. They've got 1A, 1B, 2A through 2E. And so I'm not going to get too detailed, but each regime kind of has uh, a couple of minutes in which, you know, you kind of reside in that window before moving to the next one. So so Dennis, if if 1A is at launch, do you know what the pad abort mode is called?
2: I did not see the name
1: of that. I'm, I'm, maybe it's just a, a pad abort. Stage but zero? You know, <laughs> stage zero. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> so uh, stage zero or the pad abort, whatever they're calling it, you know, would basically be the pad abort test that we saw last year, the year before, where you fire up the engines and and land in the ocean. And then they immediately toggle into uh, 1A at the moment of liftoff. Um, and that basically looks the same. You basically just land in the ocean right next to the pad. And I'm assuming that, you know, they say liftoff, but that I'm assuming that's like, you have an explosion as soon as you ignite the engines, you have a slightly different trajectory that you would follow rather than aborting before the engines are ignited it's my guess mm. anyway
2: because and, and it might be a good time to point out here is that uh the way they're doing the fueling after the astronauts are on board uh mm-hmm. and hurley are on board so they're going to be sitting up there for like 40 minutes mm-hmm. and so it's like a t minus T 38 minutes is when the pad abort Regime goes live, which is yeah. So that's definitely I the want longest be on a rocket for that long without a right. a, a crew arm to let me out. <laughs>
1: yeah. And then uh, so you start the flight in stage one A, and then that continues about halfway through the burn, a minute and 15 seconds, um, and then you transfer over into 1B, and 1B lasts until the end of the first stage flight. So I'm assuming 1B is optimized for max Q, right? That kind of seems like the the Hmm. big hurdle there. Both of them uh, look similar, uh, I mean, relatively similar, um, except 1A results in landing uh near Florida and the Florida teams doing the recovery, and then one B is landing near North Carolina and the North Carolina recovery teams uh doing doing the recovery. Um then as first stage shuts down you get into stage two A um, and that covers the separation and the second stage ignition. Stage two A is the first abort mode um that includes um multiple burns. So they'll um, do the initial burn to get away from the second stage. And then a series of prograde burns with both the super Dracos and the Dracos to target a specific splashdown location, which is really cool. You have to have a lot of knowledge about your vehicle. I mean, you know, we, we always have a lot of knowledge about the vehicle, but to be able to calculate that in real time is something that would have seemed very, very difficult, you know, in, in the Apollo era. Um, so 2A targets a specific uh, North Atlantic splashdown. And then 2B uh, comes after that. And it's a fairly short window. And that results in a retrograde burn to target a a different abort location um, past Nova Scotia. So very high latitudes here. Um, but the 2A and the 2B splashdown zones are, are different. And then 2C results in a, a splashdown off the coast of Ireland, uh, to the west. So, you know, in the Atlantic, not in the channel. <laughs> um, uh, that's, that's a prograde burn. 2D, um, lands in the same area, but it requires a retrograde burn. And then 2E is the final stage and that's, um, Just the, the last, uh, the last little bit of the ascent to orbit. And 2E is really fun. That's an abort to orbit where it has enough power to get to orbit in a lower orbit, but a safe orbit. And if you do a 2E abort, it's a successful mission. It's it's a partial failure because you can still go to ISS. And, and it's really interesting to me that 2D targets a landing as soon as possible instead of aborting to orbit without enough fuel to get to ISS. You know, the decision there, I, I assume, is if we're not going to iss we want to have people in space as little as possible we want to have the lowest speed uh reentry that we can and so instead of going up to orbit you know collecting our senses uh, loosening our our uh, our collars back up after we 've been you know going blue let 's just immediately abort back to the ground but i I love to e I love abort to orbits um, you know the only shuttle abort that ever happened was an abort to orbit with a partial failure right they they had to abort, but they were able to continue their mission. And I, I think that's pretty darn cool.
0: Mm-hmm. In that instance, it was because they had lost an engine? Was that it? I can't remember. Yeah, uh, they, the shuttle they, had, orbit. they
1: had an engine out, correct. Yeah. Um And then I, I want to point out, Stage 2E is listed as beginning at 8 minutes 44 seconds. The second stage cutoff happens at 8 minutes 44 seconds. So the window there is really, really, really tiny. But I'm, I'm assuming it's, you know... It says eight minutes forty-four seconds. It's probably a couple, of, maybe a, maybe two or three seconds there, uh, where mm-hmm. you can do that, where you've almost almost gotten all the way there.
0: That is interesting. I mean, yeah, that's uh, four, five, six seconds. So that's a six-second window. That's
1: two, no two D is a six-second window. The retrograde right. burn yeah. back to back to Ireland. yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah those yeah. two seconds are splashing you down in Ireland or putting you into a. Uh, Lower than planned, but safe orbit.
1: Yeah. In particular, we're talking about six seconds with an engine that is orders of magnitude more powerful than the um, engines on board, or at least, you know, in terms of Delta V efficiency, maybe orders of magnitude is an exaggeration, but something that's really designed to get you up into orbit and not for maneuvering on orbit in the, in the exclusive way that the Draco engines are. So you've got all that power concentrated in the second stage um not only that but the second stage is empty at that point so you're really able to push hard in those last 6 seconds i mean you know you you throttle to to thrust limit but we're talking about a lot of thrust yeah so the those 6 seconds really make a big difference because you're pushing with the second stage engines or the the second stage engine and its entire job is to do this one thing to get to orbit. Whereas the Super Dracos, their main job is to abort and then theoretically to land. But the fuel on board Dragon is all, you know, maybe saying all reserved, uh, for, Docking with ISS is is probably a bad way to put it, but for all intents and purposes, that fuel is for doing the mission, not for getting to orbit. And so those last six seconds are really important. It's the tyranny of the rocket equation. You know, you you really got to use uh, your fuel where you have it. Um, but yeah, six seconds between aborting to orbit and uh, burning backwards to get to get to your last recovery zone. Ben Hallard in the chat says uh, TIL the shuttle abort mode transit transoceanic landing uh was really cool where they basically would have from vandenberg they would have done a transoceanic landing landing at easter island um and then launching from you know obviously they never launched out of vandenberg but launching out of out of florida um they would have landed Where was their TAL?
0: It was in Spain, wasn't it?
1: Oh, okay. So yeah, there was Moron Air Force Base in Spain, Zaragoza in Spain, Istres in France, and then they were considering um, Gambia and Morocco as potential alternate transatlantic abort sites.
0: So, one interesting little tidbit of information is that the last time a new spacecraft, and by new we mean a newly designed spacecraft, had uh, launched a human into space was in 2003, uh when Yang Liwei had launched aboard the Shenzhou 5. So, that hmm. took me by surprise that yeah. like, Think like
2: What were you doing in 2003? <laughs> <laughs> that's how long ago it was.
0: <laughs> I mean, Yeah, well, it, then one technical amendment might be oh, the Virgin Galactic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but those aren't orbital spacecraft. So this is orbit. The last time anyone was put into orbit was 2003 by a new spacecraft. Because, yeah, it's just been Soyuz Shuttle. And I think that's it, right? Or am I missing one? Oh, no, I think that's it. <laughs> for Americans. For Well, for anyone. For, I mean, it comes down to Soyuz.
1: For yeah. It's Soyuz Shuttle, uh, Shenzhou. And then, you know, we're, we're, we're approaching the Indian human launcher. But I mean, as far as development, that's pretty much it. I mean, maybe Blue Origins, you know, they're probably around the same, you know, in the same ballpark as as India, probably a little bit behind. And I guess Sierra Nevada, you know, they are, uh, uh, Dream Chaser could, well, you know, is hopefully going to have a human variant. And so that'll yeah. be pretty close to, te- you know, a, a good readiness level, technology readiness level. But, yeah, uh, that's,
2: that's just screaming to have a crew oh, you know, person I in know. there, at least.
1: <laughs> I know. Yeah. The, the child of shuttle. Aesthetically speaking, don't, don't at me. So, so before we actually see the launch, I think there are two more things that we need to talk about. Uh, first off, Planetary.org had a great uh, article. This was um, written by Casey Dreyer. And the headline is, NASA's Commercial Crew Program is a Fantastic Deal. Two spacecraft for less than a Project Gemini. <laughs> it's pretty cool. So I just wanted to read off some numbers here real quick. Obviously, out of the, you know, the Apollo run up, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, uh, Apollo was the most expensive. Um, an Apollo CSM, uh, the the development costs adjusted for inflation, the development costs to NASA were $30.9 billion. Uh, shuttle was $27.4 billion. Uh, Orion is 23.7 billion so far. Crew Dragon is 1.7 and Starliner is 2.8 billion. So this is a fantastic, uh, deal. And then there's another set of numbers, the per seat cost adjusted for inflation. Um, these are calculated, um, by the total cost of program operations to NASA divided by the number of astronauts flown during that period. So again, Apollo. Was very, very expensive. Um, Apollo just going to low Earth orbit, Casey has calculated as $390 million per astronaut. Uh, shuttle was better, 170 million. Soyuz is even better, 90 million. And then we go back up to get to Orion, which is looking at <laughs> 291 million, even though Orion hasn't flown humans yet. That's, that's the way Casey has calculated it out. So then let's get to the deals. Crew Dragon is looking at $60 to $67 million per seat. And Starliner is looking at $91 to $99 billion per seat. Um, So Starliner, looking like it's going to be more expensive than Soyuz. uh, Still, it's really good to have diversity. The cost will hopefully come down as it flies and it's, you know, it's even if it was hard capped at, you know, ninety one million dollars and just a million dollars more expensive than a soy seat, it's still good to have diversity. It's still good to have redundancy there. But Crew Dragon, sixty to sixty seven million dollars is calculated by Casey Dryer. That's pretty freaking good.
0: <laughs> I'm wondering what goes into those calculations because it seems like something like Crew Dragon should be cheaper than that, but I don't know what constitutes a cost. You know what I mean? Like is that how much NASA spends for the whole mission or is, is that how much it costs like SpaceX? Because I yeah, don't think so, that that's how much so
1: this is all in terms of NASA's expenses. So Starliner mm-hmm. and Crew Dragon, they calculate the per seat costs by taking the total contract value for operations divided by the maximum. 24 seats uh that might be that the contract might be extended to. Um so the upper the the lower range is that then the upper range and reflects the inclusion of NASA's program overhead. And then Soyu the Soyuz was just the straight ticket price um from NASA's most recent purchase in 2020. Uh Ben Hallard in the chat points out that Axiom is paying fifty five million dollars per seat for their SpaceX contract. And you know, of course Hmm. Axiom is the um the private space flight booking company. Uh, okay. And then one more thing before we, as a, uh, as a fandom arrive at the launch and actually seeing that, uh, discovery is putting out, um, what looks like a very entertaining documentary. It's called space launch live. America returns to space. So it's, uh, Discovery and Science Channel are doing that because they're, they're owned by the same company. So they're going to be doing live coverage, uh, you know, on, on cable or satellite, however you, uh, however you watch Discovery and Science. They're going to do live coverage. And then before that, they're going to be airing a documentary. Um, the documentary is called NASA and SpaceX Journey to the Future. Um, that's going to be airing May 25th at 9 PM Pacific time. Oh, it says PTET. So I guess there's going to be, Two different airings or PTET is 9 PM Pacific. I never understood, uh, the way that, that cable channels <laughs> put their, put their, uh, right. their hour forming. But anyway, May 25th at 9 PM PT slash ET on science and 10 PM PTET, May 26th on discovery. So, um, basically they sent a film crew into NASA and SpaceX facilities. Um, they're going to be, uh, airing like tours or, you know, footage at least of launch control. Um, they're going to be doing interviews with Elon Musk, Bridenstine and Bankin and Hurley. The article that I found this and there'll be a link in the show notes. It's a deadline article it says the documentary reveals behind the scenes action with the teams of SpaceX engineers, NASA employees and scientists as they fulfill the SpaceX mission to quote, fly test and fix their way to the ISS. And so the the really cool thing is that they're going to have a bunch of, well, no, the really cool thing is that it's interviews and footage of these facilities. Also cool is that during the live launch uh, coverage uh, Adam Savage and Mark Rober from YouTube are going to be co-hosting. And then they also say that K- Katy Perry and maybe other people are going to be there. Um, they're also going to have what they call a quartet of current and former astronauts, uh, as well as, uh, Bridenstine, um, kind of doing a panel. So it'll be Chris Cassidy, Bridenstine, and then I don't see the names of the other two astronauts, but you know, it is, uh, corporate cable coverage. Oh, I see. James Sutherland in the chat points out there are two different channels, Discovery East and Discovery West. So it is, uh, 9 p.m. and then 10 p.m. local, depending on, I guess, local, if you're in one of those two time zones. So yeah, if you have cable, you probably understand this better than I do because I don't think I've ever (laughs) lived in a home that actually had cable. But yeah, there you go. It's, uh, cable TV. So it's not going to be super amazing, but, uh, exclusive footage, you know, at least always is, uh, it provides little pieces that you can pause on and, and look at, even if the words being attached to it aren't particularly insightful. And also, it's Mark Rober and Adam Savage. Like They are so entertaining and so fun. They're probably not going to be saying anything new. Um, and I'm assuming that the panel of, of four people isn't going to be saying anything new. But it's going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. It's going to be entertaining. So why not?
0: Four short sweets this week. What's the first one, Ben?
1: I'm really happy about this one. W First has been renamed after a pioneering woman astronomer. Jim Bridenstine announced that W First, a Hubble-like telescope with a larger field of view, has been renamed the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. Roman, whose key astronomical research distinguished different populations of stars in our galaxy, was the first woman executive and first chief astronomer at NASA. She led an initial effort in the 1960s to develop a large space telescope that would ultimately become Hubble, thus cementing her legacy as a crucial figure in making Hubble Space Telescope a reality. The Roman Space Telescope has a turbulent history regarding funding, but nominally is still on track for a 2025 launch
2: date. Next up, Skyrora completes first full static firing in the UK in half a century. Skyrora successfully tested its Skylark L rocket in Kildamoria State, North Scotland at a mobile launch complex they constructed in five The test followed 3 hot fire tests of the hydrogen peroxide and kerosene engines before they were integrated into the vehicle for the full static firing. In addition to the vehicle, the test validated the mobile launch complex's ground equipment and performed over 100 operations, including fueling and defueling. Skyrora hopes to launch the suborbital Skylark L as early as spring 2021 and the orbital Skyrora XL by 2023.
0: And then next up, Northrop Grumman gets a Space Force contract. On May 18th, a Space Force contract was announced awarding Northrop Grumman $2.37 billion to develop two satellites for the next-generation overhead-persistent infrared missile warning constellation. An earlier contract was awarded to Lockheed Martin to develop three geosynchronous satellites. These latest will be put into polar orbits and will have more powerful sensors and other features that will make them more resistant to attack. Space Force hopes to have all of these satellites deployed by 2029.
2: And fourthly, Relativity hires SpaceX executive to lead launch vehicle production. Relativity Space announced that it is hiring SpaceX's Zachary Dunn as its new VP of factory development, leading a team focused on delivering the first Terra-1 launch vehicle and scaling up production. A propulsion engineer at SpaceX since 2007, Dunn became the company's senior VP of propulsion and launch in 2018. Relativity, known for the goal of 3D printing nearly their entire launch vehicle, had earlier announced plans to move into a larger building in Long Beach, California, and set up a production line in Stennis, Mississippi to scale production. CEO Tim Ellis has said, quote, that is the best person we could possibly hire to lead that. And so um, you may have heard our recent uh, interview, uh, semi-recent, with uh, co-founder of Relativity Space, Jordan Noon. Uh, but you should also totally check out a wonderful interview he did with We Martians. Uh, that's episode 62 of theirs. The other co-founder, Tim Ellis, uh, also did a wonderful interview with uh, Managing Cutoff. Uh, and so that's episode 157 in their catalog. So definitely check that out and get all the good Relativity info you can.
1: It's okay stand
0: by. we're looking at it Questions, comments and correction burns. Uh, so we have a couple things this week. first one is a <laughs> an interesting tweet from Ben yeah. Howard.
1: Yeah, this is really good. This is a continuation of the discussion that we had last week about about Orion going into a near rectilinear halo orbit around the moon instead of a lower orbit. And we were talking about Delta V getting to the surface, but Ben Howard uh, reached out to us on Twitter and pointed out that the Delta V bottleneck here is actually Orion. So I'll just, I'll read his tweet verbatim. And then there'll be a link in the show notes. And there's some good conversation that goes off of that with Jonathan Goff, uh person who actually builds rockets <laughs> and then uh, some mm-hmm. of our other listeners uh, names of which i think will be familiar um, but anyway uh, ben says the reason artemis 3 would use nrho is due to a performance limitation of orion it has much less delta v than apollo csm the command and service module because sls icps the sls with the interim cryogenic propulsion stage sls icps has a much less delta yeet or being funny mm-hmm. delta v than sls eus the expanded or the exploration upper stage or uh, sls eus or constellation and then here's here's a killer joke that i have to include nrho could be called the alabama orbit because it's an sls crutch um, so <laughs> I, I think that's uh this is a very humorous tweet and i appreciate all of the I like that. all the silliness that went into it but it's actually a, a really good point um, we were talking about, you know, why go to NRHO when your lander can save some delta V if you go into a lower orbit. And it's because the lander was already designed to land from NRHO. It's supposed to be landing from Gateway. Um, but now that we're potentially or, I guess, likely pulling Gateway out of the picture for at least Artemis 3, or, or no, certainly pulling it out of the picture for Artemis 3, um, and perhaps in the future as well, the key here is that Orion has the Delta V to get to NRHO, but not the Delta V um, or, or to, you know, unreasonably slim margins to get home from a lower orbit. And uh, obviously Orion can do a, a uh, high retrograde orbit, or uh, sorry, a distant retrograde orbit, which is what Artemis 2 is going to do. Uh, yeah, what Artemis 2 is going to do. And then go, go check out the conversation on Twitter because there's a good conversation about why Orion has less delta V.
0: And then another little interesting uh, bit of reading material for you is an article that was written in The Atlantic and featured in the article is an interview with our very own Ben Hallert, uh, who had some interesting things to say about Elon Musk. So this article is about the cult of Elon, I think is what it's called, mm-hmm. or uh, the cult of Elon is cracking, which I'd say that's fair. <laughs> um But just like given what he's been saying recently in his tweets and just, you know, the various things and eccentricities that we, I guess, are familiar with when it comes to billionaires um, – um, eccentric genius types. So, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting article, and Ben Howard has some interesting things to say. I can't disagree. I think that, uh, I think the biggest thing for me, honestly, the biggest thing for me, um, this is like a pet peeve I have with celebrities is the name that he gave his, uh, his newborn son or daughter. I don't remember which. Oh, uh,
1: yeah, his son. Mm-hmm. Um, w- rumor is that it's pronounced Kyle.
0: Oh, really? <laughs>
2: oh, my goodness.
0: Anyway, cool article. Check it out. All right. Let's move right along to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have, Full credit for Jason Friesen and the Greek, and then slightly, slightly less full credit, as you put it, Ben, for Christian <laughs> Lowe, Cy Kyle, and Ben Howard. That is an interesting distinction. Slightly less full credit.
1: So, so the difference is getting the event right and actually explaining why the clue pertains to the event.
0: I would just say like partial credit, but (laughs) slightly less than that. Yeah,
1: I felt like being loquacious.
0: So the clue from last week was nine, eight, six, and seven, and eight is you know A T E. So nine, eight, six, and seven. I had no idea what that was about, (laughs) but they do.
1: All right, this week in spaceflight history is May thirtieth, nineteen seventy-one. It was the launch of Mariner nine. Hence the nine in the clue. So uh for those of you that don't know, Mariner nine was a Mars probe. Um In fact, it wasn't, it wasn't just the first uh, probe to orbit Mars, but it was actually the first probe to orbit any planet other than earth. The launch of Mariner nine happened just six years after lunar orbiter one, which was the first vehicle to orbit any body other than earth. Right. And uh Mariner nine, Uh, I just wanted to talk about its, its journey to Mars. Uh, it did a direct ascent. So you launch and go immediately into the transfer burn. Um, and then on the way there, it did a single TCM, just a single correction burn. And then once it got there, uh, it did an entry burn. And then on the next orbit, uh, maybe two orbits later, I believe it was just the next orbit. Though it did uh, an adjustment burn, a uh, uh, in-orbit correction burn, and then to to lower its apoapsis um, just a, just a skosh, just a little bit. And then a few months later, um, it did another planned burn, which put it into a twelve-hour period orbit. And the reason for that was so that it could sync up with Goldstone uh, and transmit once a day. And the interesting thing there is we've got the direct ascent, which puts it on the path, then you have a TCM that's one, the entry burn that's two, orbital correction burn that's three, and then an adjustment burn that's four burns. Mariner 9 had an engine capable of five restarts. So they did it one under par. Um, And uh, by the way, the engine was uh, a monomethylhydrazine nitrogen tetroxide-fueled engine. So Mariner 9 was a follow-on to Mariner 6 and 7. And the clue, 9, 8, 6, and 7, is an allusion to the fact that uh Mariner 9 was heavier than Mariner 6 and 7 put together. <sighs> This, this is a chunky boy, uh, in, in terms of early spaceflight. Uh, it massed nine, almost a thousand kilograms altogether, 997.9 kilograms. Uh, 740-ish kilograms of that was fuel, and 63.1 kilograms of that was science payload, the good stuff. Speaking of science, Mariner 9 did a, a lot of work. Um, it did atmospheric studies using S-band occultation. So as it disappeared behind the, the limb of Mars, they listened to the S-band communications coming back and used those, those radio waves that passed through the atmosphere, um, to do some atmospheric studies. This was a follow-on, I believe, to, both Mariner six and seven did this. Maybe it was just one of them uh, did the same kind of occultation study. And then Mariner nine also was able to do heavy, heavy, heavy mapping of Mars. You know, the best mapping that we had ever done up to that point. Although you know, a lot of missions can claim that. It, it mapped greater than seventy percent of the surface, and it did so at a very low altitude compared to earlier flybys. I mean, that, that's fairly obvious. Um, but it it uh, was orbiting at fifteen hundred kilometers. Um, so that's uh, a lot better than, you know, the thousand photos or whatever you get as, as you zip past the surface. On board, it had a UV spectrometer. It also had an infrared interferometer spectrometer. I don't know what the difference between an interferometer spectrometer and an interferometer are.
2: I haven't heard it in that context before, but it might be something where um, there's uh, tunable spectrometers where it has to do with ah. having two kind of plates and you adjust that separation to pick out certain frequencies. I but doing spectroscopy
1: with interferometry somehow. And and I believe that was mostly used to look for tectonic activity, to, to look for hot spots, uh narrow bits in the crust. Of course, you know, there aren't any of those anymore. And then there was also a visual uh camera, which had a resolution of 320 feet or ninety-eight meters per pixel, which is nothing nowadays, but like Going from telescope viewings and a couple of quick passbys to be able to map 70% plus of the surface. That's really fantastic. And then also there was kind of a bonus uh, experiment, just like the atmospheric occultation uh, study didn't require a dedicated uh, instrument. Similarly, they mapped the gravity field using orbital dynamics, kind of something that's, you know, a standard thing to do, but it's also worth talking about because we had never been able to study the orbital or the, the, Lumpy gravity fields uh, in this way before. Now, Mariner six and seven were a, a twin mission, uh, you know, kind of a Gemini mission. Um, so, so Mariner eight was supposed to fly as sort of the second twin to Mariner nine, just like Mariner six and seven were, were twins. Um, however, if you if you remember, Mariner eight failed on launch. Um, I don't have plans to do a Mariner 8 this week in space fight history. So I thought I'd talk about it here. Um, Cause it's, it's really interesting technically in a way that the highly successful Mariner 9 isn't, if I can say that. Mm-hmm. Um, so both Mariner 8 and Mariner 9 launched on Atlas Centaur. Um, Mariner 8's Centaur, the the upper stage after it, it you know had a clean separation but after the engines ignited, it started oscillating in the pitch direction. And then after 20 sec- 28 seconds of oscillating, the thrust vector control locked into a single pitch, which wouldn't be too horrible if it was a zero uh, a zero degree pitch, but unfortunately it was a 1.2 degree pitch. Uh, and so the thing starts tumbling in the pitch direction. Um, so not only is you know that tumble, a good indication that you're not going to space. Um, it also had an early engine cutoff due to fuel starvation as the fuel is sloshing around. Now the question is, why did this happen? We know the proximate cause, but we don't know the distal cause. We don't know the the root cause, but we have a pretty darn good guess that satisfies all the data that we collected. So we know that the pitch rate, the, the pitch rate preamp died. There's circuitry that looks at the gyros. And actually amplifies their signal so that the computer can, uh, can use, uh, use that data. We know that the preamp, uh, in the gyro mechanism died or, or in the, in the control circuitry because a preamp was built into the same board, I believe. And it makes sense. You know, you have a preamp go. That means that you're getting bad pitch data. And then who knows what happens after that? The oscillation makes a lot of sense if you've got poor pitch data you know, you're going to be responding to oscillations that aren't actually happening. Um, But I'm not sure why it ended up locking into a particular orientation. Um, We believe that the root cause was a diode. You know, diodes only let electricity flow in one direction. And in this case, not only was it I think it was not only protecting uh flow in the wrong direction, but also acting as a flow limiter. So acting as a, as a resistor when, when the, I mean, it's electronics, like it's all a mystery. I could call in Joe Barnard and he could explain it the best way he can. And I still wouldn't understand it probably, but anyway, there's a protective diode on the board. Um, and the belief is that diode was inactive, and it seems like it likely happened during either installation or repair of the control board and since it was damaged, it means that the control board tested correctly right you this wasn't a a, a failure that could be caught by you know better testing just it i, I get I mean obviously if you test every single component that's okay but the the testing that they had they followed and the testing that they had couldn't have caught this issue but with that component down, it means that the board looks like it operates properly on the ground, but when on orbit, there are transients that happen. Uh, You know, the power is a little dirty. One of those transients it's believed, uh, shorted out other components on the board and just made things worse and worse. So maybe the oscillation to TVC lock, both of those were caused by two different, uh, transients. So what do you do? Your first vehicle has a, has a failure on launch. Your second vehicle, you better be darn sure <laughs> it's not going to do the exact same thing. So the first thing they did was they pulled Mariner 9 into a test lab and did radio interference testing just to make sure it wasn't a problem with the spacecraft. Um, then they, they eliminated the spacecraft as the cause, so they started digging more. They found the issue. They they tracked it down to the, the, uh, the control board, and they actually um, had Convair, the supplier, build a new rate gyro package, test it really thoroughly, <laughs> and then they replaced um, what might have been a perfectly fine gyro package uh, on 9's Centaur. Uh, but they, they replaced it anyway out of an abundance of caution. So back to Mariner 8, or uh, I'm sorry, back, back to Mariner 9. Uh, it arrived at Mars... On November 14th, 1971. And uh, if you remember your Mars history, um, one of the largest planet wide dust storms we've ever seen was taking place at that time. And so they couldn't begin imaging the surface until January of 1972, the the next year. And while the storm sucked because this was a fairly short mission, we'll talk about the end of the mission in a little bit. While it shortened the mission, um, it did actually contribute to science. It allowed us to do some height mapping of the surface that we wouldn't have been able to do directly before, right? There, there were no uh, stereoscopic images taken where you're bouncing back and forth to take photos of the of the ground mm. from two, two different angles. Presumably, you know, since you're orbiting multiple times, you're going to photograph the same feature multiple times. And I think it's reasonable to think that you might be able to get some sort of stereoscopy <laughs> out of those multiple photos, but it's it's not the intentional height mapping that we would like to do. And there, there wasn't any radar for height mapping either. But with the storm happening, as it settled down, of course, the dust settles down to the dirt, to, to the to the Earth, to the Mars, it settles down to the surface. Um, And so we could see the tallest features poking out first. Now, of course, Olympus Mons, it's pretty darn hard to cover. It's the largest mountain in the solar system. And the tip of Olympus Mons was visible, I believe, as soon as uh, Mariner 9 got there. But as everything starts settling down, we started seeing the tall volcanoes in the Tharsis region Uh, poke out of the dust faster than the rest of the surface. So we get, we get some differentiation there. That's pretty darn cool. Mm. Also, I had no idea until I was doing the research uh, for this uh, for this news topic. Did you guys, uh, Dennis, of course, you probably knew this, but David, did you know that Vallis Marineris is named after Mariner 9?
0: Nope, I did not. Although mm-hmm. it stands to reason, I don't know why I didn't just put that together myself. Because <laughs> I mean, what other reason would there be for naming it that? So yeah, that makes sense. But uh, <laughs> no, I didn't know.
2: I actually did know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your assumption isn't unfounded. <laughs> yeah. It's,
1: that's, that's pretty cool. And I, I, David, I think the reason that it never occurred to me is because I've heard the name Valles Marineris over and over and over and over to the point where it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just, oh, it's just yeah, sounds. Right. And so I never had that mm-hmm. fresh look where I could think about it. Anyway, end of the mission. I told you I was going to get here eventually. They began imaging in January, 1972. They retired the spacecraft on October 27th, 1972 uh the limiting factor here was the nitrogen in the r c s system and uh so they you know shut the spacecraft down and left it in orbit now, I mentioned that it was in a pretty high orbit uh fifteen hundred kilometers since nineteen seventy two it's been slowly deorbiting but it's still up there uh there are still children being scared around martian Martian campfires talking about. <laughs> The, the all-seeing eye that some say is still in orbit. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not expected to deorbit until after 2022. Um, when they first shut it down, they were actually assuming an earlier deorbit uh, sometime this year. Uh, but, you know, it's still up there and and understanding more about the upper atmosphere where uh, we're now targeting 2022 or, or later, by the way. You know, uh, the farther away from deorbit you are, the harder it is to judge. And so we're Mm. thinking, you know, no sooner than 2022.
0: Well, that was an interesting tale. And if nothing else, I learned the origin of Valles Marineris, (laughs) the Mariner (laughs) Valley. I'm
1: I'm never going to forget that now.
0: Uh, So what's the clue for next week?
1: All right. Next week in 1966. The clue is not just any port in a storm.
0: Okay. Hmm. All right. No idea.
1: It's going to be a tough one.
0: Interesting clue. Not just any port in a storm. That's next week in 1966. All right. So I'm guessing something to do with Apollo, but no idea. Um, but if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck.
2: Good luck, everybody.
0: Let's move right along to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got the one, the big one. Uh- <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep. So on May 27th, hopefully ushering in a new era of human spaceflight will be Falcon 9 Block 5 taking SpaceX's DM2 or Demo Mission, demonstration Mission 2 to the uh, International Space Station for a slightly longer stay than originally intended. So if you want to check out uh, potentially eight abort modes, um, check that out. So again, that's <laughs> May 27th at 233 UTC, an instantaneous window, launching out of the legendary uh, 39A at uh, Kennedy Space Center.
1: I like that. Your your choice of a selection of eight abort modes. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, there there will have been pre-flight briefings on NASA TV, but by the time you hear this, they will all be over. Of course, NASA will be doing the the launch coverage, but what you really want to hit NASA TV for is the rendezvous, docking, and hatch opening uh, of the Dragon. So um, the docking is scheduled Actually, I don't have a hard date for this, for the scheduled docking time, but the coverage will begin at 1139 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday the 28th. The hatch opening uh, coverage will begin at uh, 1.55 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, And then they're going to have a crew event, basically, uh, you know, like a welcome ceremony um, at 2.25 p.m. Eastern Time. And then back on the ground, there will be a post-docking briefing at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. All these on Thursday, the 28th.
0: So with that docking time, so what, they're spending like a good, how long is that, 12, 17 hours or something in that Dragon spacecraft? So it's not a particularly fast dock. But I mean, it's, you know, spacious for two people, so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Right. I mean, when you can cram five people into a space and you only have, I mean, they're, they're likely going to have cargo uh, limiting the interior space. But yeah, when uh, yeah. when you have a vehicle built for five and you just have two in it, not bad.
0: Much better than a Soyuz. I would not want to be cramped up in a Soyuz yeah. for, you know, Well, hours. Apparently,
1: Crew Dragon has got a nice toilet. So Yeah, I don't know (laughs)
0: anything about the toilet. Actually, that's an interesting topic, kind of.
1: No, I don't think anybody really does at this point, but Elon said it was going to be – or that they had a a really good solution worked out that was – more pleasant than a lot of space toilets.
0: I feel like for a toilet, like, it doesn't have to be anything more fancy than what you would get on you know, like an airplane, but if you had just at least that, that would go miles. At this point, just a curtain, I mean, that's something, but maybe a more solid compartment at some point in the future would be great.
1: Yeah, I, d- <laughs> I doubt they're going to get a solid compartment. It's just yeah. too volume limited. Yeah. Anyway, so that is your upcoming spaceflight event.
0: And with that, time to deorbit over the show, so we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dot for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m.
2: Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts and hoodies. You can
2: join our discord
0: for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links.
2: We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.